0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, 1 Kings chapter 11, continued. Well, to close out the last lesson, we talked about a concept that on the surface seems like something maybe only social scientists ought to care about. However, it's anything but that. The basic and underlying concept is that throughout all mankind's history there have been and continues to be three basic societal platforms that are the foundation of every known culture that has ever existed. Each of these is unique. It's quite different. From one another. Most members of these cultural platforms have no conscious realization that they're part of an identifiable category that represents a specific philosophy of society. And in general, as we're living out our lives within one or the other of these, we either have no awareness that there are other social platforms in existence or we're unable to relate to them. Now, I need all of your attention because I think you're going to find many unspoken questions you likely have had about the Bible, about the world we live in today answered for you if you'll stay focused. We're going to spend today's entire lesson dealing with what is a truly fascinating subject. Now, this matter of societal platforms arises for us because in 1 Kings chapter 11 we encounter a man of Edomite royalty named Hadad and beginning in verse 14 we are told that this we're told the story of this fellow who was but a small child when King David and his top general Yoav decimated the Edomite male population in a war. Hadad's father fled Edom with young Hadad, and years later we find the now grown-up Hadad living in Egypt, married to a member of Pharaoh's household, ready to take revenge upon Israel. Hadad gets the word that David has died. Solomon's on the throne. So Hadad leaves Egypt to finish forming an army. It's hard to know the time frames involved. But since Hadad was raised up by God himself to be an adversary of Solomon because in the latter part of his reign the king of Israel became an idolater of some magnitude, then it must have been around 40 to 50 years or so since the time that David and Job had killed all those Edomite males that we find Hadad resurfacing. So the question that this passage poses, several questions, are why would Hadad want to come against people who had little or nothing to do with what had happened 40 years or more earlier? What did he hope to gain? Did he have delusional hopes of conquering this regional powerhouse called Israel with but a small army and then making it a a greater Edom? Solomon didn't lead the Edomite slaughter of four or five decades earlier. And besides, what would keep that fire of hatred burning inside this man for all these years when he was but a child when this offense occurred? The answer to those questions is giving me an opportunity to bring to you the enlightening concept of the three basic social platforms of history. Because understanding it is so enlightening when trying to understand the Bible, the Hebrew people, the large-scale effects of the Law of Moses, the modern Muslim and Arab issues, and the threats that we deal with because of those issues, and even the problems that Christian missionaries face as they venture to far-flung places to try and bring the good news to every corner of our globe, but often they come home deeply frustrated. In brief review, there are three basic societal platforms that the world operates under. Fear and power, shame and honor, and guilt and innocence. Many, perhaps most, societies in our day operate on some mixture of these three, but most cultures are also heavily skewed towards just one of them. And so there are just specks of the other two that might be identifiable within those same societies. In ancient times, the main difference from today is that guilt and innocence societies were essentially non-existent. Now, fear and power societies tend to be those whom we view as the most primitive ones, and that's because They see themselves as interacting daily with spirits and gods who have power over the people and over the environment and thus this can cause them great trouble. American Indians were and many remain of this ilk. So were the Mayans, the Aztecs. Those African nations that have not yet been deeply changed by Islam are usually fear and power societies. These people dwell in a world where living in peace with the spirits and the gods or appeasing them when they're angry. This is their daily concern. These supernatural beings that they deal with don't seem to operate rationally. There don't seem to be any rules or absolute. What they do is a mystery. Therefore, the people are always fearful of these spirits and gods and they're constantly searching out ways to find supernatural power or a power source to defend themselves or even to use that supernatural power to affect or maybe even cause harm to another. The concept of guilt for doing wrong generally doesn't exist in this kind of society because right and wrong don't generally exist. A moral code isn't operable in the way that we might think of it. Rather, there is merely behavior that's in line with tradition and custom or behavior that's outside of it. And behavior that's outside of it's not wrong, it's just not wanted, it's not accepted, it's not in line with the group. Now, shame and honor societies are completely consumed with their concern for social status. These societies have their basis in tribalism and thus they are group thinkers. That is, conforming to the group is always the measure. Individualism is seen as being against the group so it's a bad thing. Islam and the Arab world and the bulk of the Middle Eastern societies are strongly shame and honor-based societies. At the root of Chinese, Japanese, Korean and other Far East societies is shame and honor. But there's also a significant element of fear and power present in those societies. Behaviorally speaking, there is no thought of acting rightly or wrongly. Rather, it's all about acting honorably or shamefully. These are not word plays. Right does not equate to honorable. Wrong does not equate to shameful. Therefore, since there is no wrong... This type of society has nearly no concept of guilt, at least, is the way the Western world thinks of guilt. Acting shamefully brings dishonor, not guilt. And this is because shame is not the result of breaking a a law or a rule, rather, shame is a societal state of one who's lost their honor. Again, shame and honor are definitions of social status and they're not the result of doing right or wrong. One is either in a cultural condition of shame or a cultural condition of honor. And what shame and honor amounts to is defined by long-held tribal customs or traditions. Therefore, law in these societies is not so much about an absolute codified system of right and wrong as it is just a statement of what brings shame and what brings honor. Laws, as this category of society sees them, aren't absolutes. They're not even an attempt to state a societal moral code. The Western world consists of guilt and innocence based societies. Therefore, we view all of our decisions and behavior as based on rightness and wrongness, on their legality or their criminality. We create a system of laws that are generally absolutes and then that society's members either either comply or we don't. <clears throat> Complying makes us right. It makes us innocent, and thus we're free to make any use we'd like of our our, uh, societal benefits. Not complying makes us wrong. Therefore it makes us guilty, and thus we're singled out for punishment, for derision. And often that involves losing our societal benefits as well as our liberties. Thus avoiding guilt is paramount in our society. Feeling guilty is the result of having broken a law or perhaps part of our understood moral code, some of which is included in our laws, some of which is not. Shame, you're going to read this word a lot in the Bible, so pay attention. Shame in a guilt-innocence society is merely a loss of self-esteem due to our bearing guilt, usually for doing wrong. Shame's a very unpleasant emotion in Western guilt-innocence societies. But it's not a statement of our social status. Thus at the core of fear and power-based societies is the dealing of humans with the supernatural world. As their primary societal aim. At the core of the shame and honor based societies is conformance with their tribal traditions and their customs. That's their goal. So that they can maintain a desired social status called honor. And they'll do this at all costs. At the core of guilt and innocence-based societies is compliance with a firm set of rules and laws that in modern times, at least, has purely to do with the natural world as opposed to the supernatural world of the fear and power-based societies. Our goal is to be right and not be wrong. Because if we're wrong, now we're guilty. And the law and perhaps our family, our societies will punish us appropriately. Well, no doubt, your heads are swimming about now. I suspect you might even be a little skeptical concerning what I've just told you about the fear, power, and shame on our societies because such a way of thinking makes no sense to your mind. And I assure you, that these other societies feel the same way about our guilt-innocence-based notions. It's utterly incomprehensible to them. And this is why when in our time when we observe the Western world interacting with the Middle East both sides are frustrated and angry It's because we fundamentally do not understand each other. Our values are entirely different. How we make decisions are based on opposing sets of things that matter. We of the West look at every human action as either right or wrong. They of the East see every action as either bringing them shame or bringing them honor. Thus we talk, and even at the highest levels of government we talk, but nothing comes of it. We run into the same problem, especially if we are Westerners, when we're reading the Bible. The Bible was written primarily within the cultural context of a shame and honor society with varying amounts of fear and power mixed in. This is doubly so in the earliest parts of the scriptures before the Hebrews received the law at Mount Sinai. Now let me draw an analogy for you. Today in the USA... Uh, Today the USA and Europe have tried to engage Muslim-dominated societies in dialogue and in some cases even attempted to institute Western-style democracies as an answer to the problem of never-ending conflict between us. The problem is that Western-style democracies are by definition based on the rule of law meaning they operate in a guilt-innocence societal platform. Yet Muslim and Middle Eastern societies have since time immemorial been based on their customs and traditions that define a social code that brings about a status of either shame or honor. This is not something they're seeking to change, by the way. Any Western-style law that would ostensibly prevent a Muslim who's in a condition of shame from reacquiring their honor is a non-starter. Any law that would necessitate a Muslim giving up any measure of his honor or accepting some amount of what is viewed as shame, that's a non-starter. So how? How? Did these three so very different societal platforms come to exist in the first place? Well, understand that in the Garden of Eden, at the fall of mankind, it was not only guilt that was brought into this world by Adam and Eve's sin, but shame and fear as well. Turn your Bibles to book of Genesis. Genesis 3. We're going to read along together. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read just a few verses here. I'm going to read from 6 through 11. Genesis chapter 3, 6 through 11. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it had a pleasing appearance, and that the tree was desirable for making one wise, She took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai God among the trees in the garden. And Adonai God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree which I ordered you not to eat? The Creator had given Adam and Eve kind of Torah so to speak that consisted of but one law don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil they broke the law which is defined as doing wrong and what happened? they became guilty notice the name of the tree knowledge of good and and evil, Good is right, evil is wrong. Adam and Eve lived for a time in a utopian world in which innocence and guilt didn't exist because they didn't even have a concept of good and evil, right and wrong. They had total freedom, perfect harmony with God. Can you imagine? Also notice that as a result of the fall, they became afraid. In this case, afraid of God. But soon we'll see they became afraid of other people, of some animals, and later on of imagined spirits and gods. And they became shamed. See, the term naked is a standard term indicating shame. Not in the Western emotion sense, but in the Eastern sense of losing their honor. Let me be very clear. Ashamed is a Western concept. Shamed is an Eastern concept. Say it again. Ashamed is a western concept. Shamed is an eastern concept. Adam and Eve did not become ashamed. Rather, their status before God was reduced from honor to shame. So we see that the basis for all three of history's societal platforms was the result of the fall of mankind in the garden but was man supposed to have operated under any of these concepts as a fully systemized societal platform ideally no if Adam and Eve had stayed in harmony with God then there wouldn't have been a need for an extensive law code that would be eventually given at Mount Sinai If they had remained in perfect harmony with God, they would never have known fear of any kind. And men wouldn't have incorrectly turned various natural things like storms and stars into supposed supernatural gods and spirits. Had they determined in their free wills to merely believe and trust God they would not have seen their place of honor of knowing and communing with God face to face Mm -hmm. taken from them and thus enter a condition of shame that separated them from God. Thus from that fall into sin also came mankind's fashioning of our own perverted system for defining shame and maintaining honor among a family or a tribe. Early in mankind's history, the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, tells us of the first recorded murder. Abel was killed by his brother Cain and one of the questions that theologians love to debate endlessly is what exactly was the cause of Cain's hatred towards his brother? The answer is well understood by shame and honor-based societies, but the Western world can't quite find it. See, in a nutshell... Abel brought an offering of an animal before God and Cain brought one of produce from the ground. Jehovah accepted Abel's offering but not Cain's and Cain killed Abel because of it. But why? What had Abel done wrong? It was because Cain became shamed that Abel outdid him. Cain lost his honor among his family. Abel would have been wiser to see to it that Cain was given a way to maintain his honor perhaps by giving him an animal to offer to God. And in an honor-shame-based society, the basic premise is that shame must be remedied, often violently. Revenge is an action taken against another in hopes to remedy shame and thus regain personal honor. And revenge regularly involves killing the offending party. In another much later but well-known Bible story, we read in Genesis 38 of Judah and Tamar. And when a Christian reads it, we struggle to find right and wrong Guilt and innocence in this strange actions of these characters. And that's because it's not there. Even though we can extrapolate it from the law that we'd be given a long time later, we can find right and wrong, but it's not in the story. The short version of the story is that Judah marries a woman, she gives him three sons, and then the oldest son marries a girl named Tamar the oldest son dies. In keeping with the traditions of the times, the next son in line marries the widow Tamar, but before he can produce a son with Tamar, he also dies. By custom, then Judah's third and youngest son was obligated to marry Tamar, but Judah refused to let it happen in fear that his sole remaining son would die. As a Middle Eastern female... Tamar felt strongly that she had to produce children to keep the family name of her first husband alive. But having children was also how a woman obtained honor. She disguised herself. She tricked Judah into sleeping with her and she became pregnant. And when Judah heard about her pregnancy, not knowing it was he who was the father... He demanded that she be burned alive. When she informed him that he was the father, he understood why she did what she did and he sang her praises. So we have death, prostitution, incest, illicit sex, the whole nine yards going on here. (laughs) What's the story really about? It's about shame and honor. Tamar was greatly shamed by Judah refusing to let his youngest son marry this twice-widowed family member. Remembering that right and wrong has virtually no place in a shame and honor society, all Tamar could think about was regaining her honor So using deceit, committing fornication and incest, she became pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. And in a shame and honor-based society, wrong doesn't exist when it comes to excising shame and regaining honor and nothing she did was considered in the context of right or wrong. Judah now hearing of his daughter's daughter-in-law's pregnancy a scandal absolute scandal demands her death because he and his entire family were now in a state of shame due to her action of becoming pregnant outside of wedlock the only way to regain his family honor the only way was by means of her death But when he found out that what she did was honorable after all he pronounced her righteous meaning honorable in this context. Then because by tribal custom he should have given his youngest son to her as a husband but didn't he was the one who lost some of his societal status. His honor was diminished and in a typical Middle Eastern display of exaggerated wordplay, he declares the woman, Tamar, as having a greater degree of honor than he for doing what she did so cleverly to regain her honor. See, right and wrong, guilt and innocence is only an issue out at the fringes of this story. And even then, right and wrong in this context is all about how to regain honor and to escape shame. Whatever it takes to regain honor is right, so to speak. Whether it's the death of the offender, whether it's by lie, deceit, or even successfully concealing the event, none of this produces guilt. Because the goal is always to regain the societal status of honor. The issue was not debated or questioned by the people of that era. Tamar's actions were very representative of the basis of that society. It was a given. And so ingrained as it was, we find in this story, we find no condemnation of her behavior in this story. If anything, it's Judah who is mildly rebuked and this for not giving Tamar to his youngest son in the first place. As for our final biblical example of the influence of a shame and honor-based society, we need look no further than Messiah's famous turn-the-other-cheek admonition to his followers and to his fellow citizens. Now keep in mind that Yeshua's day was around 1,600 years or so after the time of Judah and Tamar. Yet, the shame shame and honor mentality was still the dominant societal force among the Hebrews. Which, by the way, is one reason that the Romans, who were now primarily a guilt-innocence society of laws, had such a difficult time trying to govern the Holy Lands. Matthew 5.39 says, But I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. Or in a translation that gets a little bit closer to the cultural sense, of that era since the word wrong is nowhere present in the original language text I say you don't fight back when harm is done to you on the contrary if someone slaps you on your right cheek toward, uh, turn towards him the other cheek too. Here's the thing to understand. Today in most western societies being slapped on the cheek is a f- criminal offense called assault one could be arrested and go to jail for it. Or it is seen, sometimes, as rather trivial and just sloughed off. But in the Middle East, from time immemorial, it was neither a criminal act nor was it trivial. Rather, it was the worst. It was an act that was depended to impart shame It was the greatest insult that could transpire among humans. A man who was slapped on the cheek had only a couple of options. Wander away and accept being in an indefinite status of shame before his family and his tribe. This was a nearly unthinkable choice. Or react violently. Take revenge. Thus keeping his honor even if it costs him or the other fellow his life. There was no right or wrong to it. There was no guilt. There was no innocence. Yeshua had said in the previous verse, you have heard that our fathers were told eye for eye, tooth for tooth. See, that is the proportional concept of justice for breaking a law, a God-given principle was regularly being misapplied to cases of shame and honor. And from the moment Moses was given the law, right up until today, separating issues of shame and honor from issues of guilt and innocence has remained a thorny problem. Yeshua was telling the one who had been shamed not to take revenge to recoup their honor. God's justice system, the Mosaic law, does not permit revenge for an insult. So Christ was dealing with the central philosophical platform of his society at that time, shame and honor, not lawbreaking. He wasn't telling anyone Ever that if someone steals from you or brutally attacks you in a criminal fashion or commits some kind of civil crime against you, at least as defined in the Torah, that we should just look the other way and excuse the perpetrator. Or that you must never defend yourself, or come to someone's rescue if they're attacked, or prosecute a criminal. Turning the other cheek was not about criminal acts. Jesus gave us a whole series of cases whereby one should react entirely differently in matters of shame and honor in a shame-honor-based society than what was typical for his day, violence and revenge. Now let me throw out one other thing to you. Hopefully now that you have some feel for the nature of society in ancient times, including Hebrew society, you'll understand that the idea of a set of laws suddenly being thrust upon the Israelites, laws introduced from God rather than man-made traditions and doctrines, laws which were to become the new basis for a redeemed Hebrew society. This was a nearly incomprehensible matter for these wandering Israelites. God was literally in process of transforming the standard shame-honor-based society of Israel into a guilt-innocence-based society and for good reason. Because as imperfect as earthly societal, any earthly societal platform might be until mankind understood that there was such a thing as absolute right and absolute wrong in God's eyes and that it was not relative to the circumstance until humans could see that doing wrong brought guilt to them just as it did to Adam until these chosen people understood that God's principles were unchangeable and that any status of shame and honor was bestowed upon them by God according to their standing with Him, not some fuzzy set of tribal traditions, then without that they could never see their own sin no matter how deeply they were wallowing in it. So St. Paul, in the New Testament, explains the reason for God introducing the law and thus the basis of a guilt-innocence society. He says it in Romans 5. This is Paul's words. Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered the world and through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through all the human race inasmuch as everyone sinned. Sin was indeed present in the world before the Torah was given. But sin wasn't counted as sin since there was no Torah. Nevertheless, death ruled From Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not exactly like Adam's violation of a direct commandment, in this, Adam prefigured the one who was to come. So, says Paul, and I paraphrase Adam's sin was obvious because there was a rule violation don't eat the fruit from that tree and once Adam's sin entered the world the death it brought with it passed to the whole human race and it couldn't be eradicated except by extraordinary measures taken by God but what about the centuries immediately following Adam but before the Torah was given to Moses what about all that time What were the rules during that time frame for mankind to live by? And if there weren't any known written rules, does that mean sin was dormant? Essentially, it didn't matter. Remember, this would be a time When all human societies were either fear power based or shame honor based, because up to now there had been no guilt innocent societies because there was no law. And without laws to break, there's nothing to be guilty of. Adam couldn't have been guilty of anything if there hadn't been a rule to break. For these ancient societies, the concept of sin was very hazy. It more applied to doing some kind of unwarranted harm to another person or it was some perceived offense you, you must have committed to a, against a spirit or a God when you experienced troubles, otherwise you wouldn't have had any troubles. Life was all about either appeasing the gods simply because they had power over you or doing whatever it took to maintain your honor and avoiding shame within your tribe. And there was no wrong in whatever approach you might take to achieve honor. So right and wrong was a concept that had very little meaning. And when right and wrong have no meaning, sin has no meaning. Again, where there is no law, there is no trespass. So, says Paul, just because God had not presented the world with his laws yet doesn't mean that those laws didn't exist someplace else in heaven. God had very deliberate standards for people to live by ever since mankind was created. And even though humans may not have been aware of these standards per se, it was because of our innate sin and our evil inclinations that we had no concept of trespassing against God. Thus, for the longest time, even though sin was of course in the world, men didn't see any of their behavior as sin because God hadn't given His laws to men in a form that they could physically see and thus measure their own behavior against it as a standard. But once He did that, now men were aware of their own sin. And now that they were aware of their sin, they were aware of their guilt. But they also now had the opportunity to either obey God and not sin or to seek a remedy for sin if they failed. I'm going to end today's lesson with this thought. I probably haven't done you any favors with this new knowledge you now have. You're going to see things in the Bible now that others don't you're going to understand certain biblical instructions and stories in ways that others won't especially those of the doctrine oriented church leadership and while I've added a piece to the puzzle of God's infallible word the puzzle also just grew in size It went from a 500-piece puzzle to a thousand. (laughs) In reference to our modern times and the violent confrontation between Islam and the Western world that will likely, my opinion, be at the root of never-ending conflicts that will eventually lead to Armageddon, you will hear what our Western governments say to the Islamic governments and notice how the Islamic governments respond and probably you'll be better at predicting an outcome and understanding a response than your own government leadership will. Part of this is because you are now cognizant of something most of them are not the very different societal goals and values between these three types of societal platforms that dominate our planet. But even more, because you're also able to incorporate God's promises, God's commandments, His prophecies into what you see happening. So you're going to have a better lens through which to view all the turmoil and understand what it is you're seeing next week we'll get back into 1 Kings and talk a little more about the character called Hadad okay?